the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. This is Next Steps for Seniors with your host, Wendy Jones. Each week, Wendy brings resources and information to help guide you through those next steps for your elderly parent or loved one. Now, here's Wendy Jones with this week's guest. Welcome to Next Steps for Seniors, Conversations on Aging. I'm Wendy Jones, your host, and each and every week we bring topics and information that really relate to you. I should say your future you, because we all age, it happens to everyone. But our topic this week is a little unique and different and affects everybody, and it's the impact of aging on driving. Yes, I said driving, because guess what? We all drive. (laughs) And things happen as we drive, because as we get older, it could be an effect. So our topic today is going to be the age effects on driving. So think about this. Decreased vision, impaired hearing, slower motor reflexes, our health conditions are worse, we have less strength, less coordination. This is what we're going to be talking about today. And what are the warning signs? of unsafe driving in seniors, because there can be a lot of those. And when you're getting a lot of close calls on the road, we need to be paying more attention. Or what about eyesight issues or problems with memory? So these are the topics and more that we're going to be discussing today, because in reality, as older adults ourselves and as our children of older adults become more concerned with our own safety, safety of loved ones and safety of others all impact us. So today I have two guests in the studio and I'm very blessed to have Bill Cataldo, who is a criminal defense attorney for 22 years, recently retired chief of homicide for Macomb County Prosecutor's Office, Good morning, Bill. How are you today? Good morning, Wendy. We're, we're grateful to have you with us. And we also have Tim Brown. Now, Tim Brown was with Michigan State Police for 26 years, so I think he's got a little bit of experience on the road. And let me add, one of the nation's foremost experts 
on automobile crash reconstruction. So, Tim, you actually have your own company, Tim Brown & Associates, correct? I do, Wendy. All right. And you are you work very closely with the state, insurance companies, on all of that. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, we're blessed to have both of you in the studio today. I do feel like between the two of them, there is a wealth of knowledge that we all get to learn and grow through because driving affects everyone. So, Bill, I want to start with one question, which has really been on my mind a lot, is about driving being a privilege and not a right. Let's talk about the foundational issues concerning driving themselves. I mean, when we say it's a privilege and not a right, what we're talking about is the fact that there is nothing in the United States or the Michigan or any state constitution that says a basic human right is the right to be on the roads, the right to drive. We don't have that. It is a privilege. That's why when you're 16 years old, you have to take driving instruction courses to qualify. It's the same as you age. There are ways in which the state is going to protect you, They're going to protect your loved ones, and they're going to protect others that are on the road. So therefore, you have to continue to qualify. As you get older, you may be brought in, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, to be retested. Because if you're not able to have great eyesight and vision and what Tim will talk about in a few minutes, reaction times in those emergent situations, then you shouldn't be on the road. That's why it's a privilege and not a right because it's the protection of others, the safety of others in society. It so is, but I feel like, too, it's an independence thing, right? Because oh, as we age, you know, things start getting taken away from us, right? And the, the one thing that truly gives us complete independence is our ability to go anywhere we want to go in our car. And that's why I think some people become so comfortable with thinking they have the right to drive. Exactly. And they have that independence. And that's one of the whole program's issues that you have been talking about for years and years, and that is independence in seniors. But very important in this situation for society is the recognition of when we must take the initiative to either get our parents off the road or to take ourselves off the road, not only for our own interests, but protection of others. And as chief of homicide for a number of years, I wrote a number of warrants in these very sad situations where accidents happened because people weren't capable of driving and lives were lost and impacted. And therefore, it's something that's very important to society. Driving as a privilege is great, but it's more important that we remain safe. Exactly. And that's where Tim Brown comes into play. (laughs) Because he's like, we've got to stay safe on these roads. So there are a number of laws. And and I want to get into that a little bit. Because in regards to what those laws are, right? The civil infractions, you know, criminal in nature. Quickly, what we're talking really about is a foundation here. When you're driving, you have to follow certain rules. And then we have a difference between civil infractions, which are tickets that result in points and insurance increases. And then we have criminal sanctions, which when you're driving and you are either impaired or careless or intentionally negligent, then those are more serious. Those require 
uh, have criminal aspects like loss of freedom, jail, things like that. The most common ones we see among senior drivers would be failure to stop in a safe, assured, clear distance or failure to yield. That usually happens in intersections where they don't see a vehicle coming or they can't recognize that the vehicle in front of them has stopped and they run into them. I don't think what everybody realizes is you can't come to court and say, hey, the car in front of me stopped. I didn't have time to stop. No, the law is you need to recognize by paying attention that they've gotten into that situation so that you can stop yourself. The assumption is you're at fault. And and that's what we see. So we have those civil situations. And then it elevates a little bit to what we call in Michigan anyways, moving violation causing death. Every state has a violation where you're not really criminally negligent. You just didn't see somebody. Most often, seniors don't see motorcycles. And then they turn into the path of the motorcycle, and then that's the accident. Now, there's nothing criminal in terms of your intent. There was no negligence, per se, in your intent. But what happens is the law requires that somebody be held responsible for that action or for that activity. And so after the crash reconstruction report is written, after it's brought to the prosecutor's office and it's evaluated, then we have to assign fault. And that's why that case is that. And what I don't think people realize is as they get older, we're talking about drugs and alcohol and driving also. Mm -hmm. It's not that simple. As seniors and as we age, you're on medications that impact your ability to function, whether it's Oxycontin, Hydrocortone, Ambien, to sleep, or, uh, or Zoloft. There are some psychological medications where you're not supposed to drive. So you, if you're driving under the influence of those medications, are treated as if you're using cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, marijuana. You're bringing up such a great point right now, Bill, because I don't know that every senior or family member, for that matter, recognizes that that's exactly what's happening with these medications. And the small print on the bottle or on the form that you get from the pharmacy says, do not drive or caution upon driving. But we're not paying attention to that small print. Half of us can't even see the small print on the bottle. But it is so important to recognize medications, the average number of medications seniors is on is between 10 and 12 medications per day. So that can absolutely affect your driving. And you bring up a great point about it being the same as alcohol, fentanyl, marijuana, all the other things, right? And I think marijuana is because we relaxed the rules on it. And uh, you see dispensaries on almost every corner of major cities The strength of marijuana, I don't think seniors recognize, is greater now than it was in the 60s and 70s when they may have experimented with it. And it's also used for sleep. It's also used for chronic pain. There are a number of reasons that marijuana has a medicinal use, which is why there has been a relaxation of the rules regarding marijuana. The problem is it still impacts, and Tim, as a trooper, will tell you significantly the number of cases he's seen, it does impact driving. And therefore, it's not like taking uh, a vitamin. It is, in fact, a narcotic, and it does impact your range of motion. It does impact your reaction time. And therefore, it's something that needs to be considered. And uh, unlike alcohol, 
where we actually do have the scientific ability to measure, measure the amount of alcohol in your system at any given time, we don't have that scientific ability with marijuana or with Oxycontin or with cocaine simply because we can say that it's in the system and at what level it's in the system but because everybody's different we're not able to determine like we are with alcohol that at a certain point at a certain nanogram for example with marijuana that you're no longer able to function at a level significantly enough to operate your vehicle appropriately. So what, let me ask you this question. What are the most common violations that you see in seniors? Tim, I, th- I think you've been on the road a number of years and have dealt with a lot. Of, <laughs> I see it on the, on, the, on the prosecution end, but I don't always see it on the road. Tim's been on the road for a, a number of years. So we're going to get into that question as soon as we return in our next segment. And remember, our areas we're covering today, ways to get seniors in your life to recognize when it's time to stop driving and how it impacts driving and the law pertaining to it. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Next Steps for Seniors, Conversations on Aging. As you know, our topic today, impact of aging on driving. We have two experts in the studio today, and both are phenomenal, have tons of knowledge, and we are learning a lot from them. I want to share from you with you the National Highway Safety. So this is an interesting statistic because the number of older drivers in the U.S. is growing rapidly because Americans are living longer and retaining their licenses later in life. So that raises a lot of safety concerns because as drivers in their 70s and 80s could be a greater risk at certain types of crashes and more prone to severe injuries and fatalities than younger aged people. A lot of things can attribute to that. And some of the most difficult components are turning left, merging, changing lanes, and weather conditions. So that's just to name a few. And this is a great topic because why? It's making us think about it, right? How many of you like to go out at night and drive? Really? Do you see the halos around the lights? Are you like, "Mm, I'm not sure I should be driving anymore? Or do you just do it and figure, eh, I'll be fine? Well, what about everybody else on the road? (laughs) We got to start thinking about this stuff. So Tim Brown is here and has so much experience on this. And Tim, I wanted to ask you because... The reality is there are more common things in seniors than you that you see than in, in other drivers. So let's talk about what maybe some of those driving behaviors would be. You know, Wendy, I hate to say, um, you know, careless behavior, careless driving habits. <clears throat> but what we, what we see is the, uh, the decrease in their cognitive skills and their decision-making processes are uh, uh, increased and when you get on the road and you think about uh, somebody driving, I'll give you an example, somebody driving down the freeway at a, uh, 70 miles per hour, if we convert that miles per hour to feet per second, um, they're traveling about 102 feet per second. If you think about that in the sense that they um, look at their watch or they uh, looking, they're distracted for one second or two seconds or three seconds, they've just driven a football field 
um, down the freeway and not had any idea what they were looking at, where they were going. Uh, that's extremely, extremely risky uh, for anybody, not only the driver, but anybody else in the freeway. Um, so what we see is we see a lot of uh, inattentive driving, and again, not uh, in, you know intentional, but simply driving behavior that is just puts not only them at risk, but the people, the motoring public around them at risk as well. Um, so that, that's a, a few things that we look into and we have to take into consideration. Well, and I, I can totally understand that because you just go to turn the radio station now. It just takes you longer as you age, right? You're looking down, you're reaching out. You can't just flip it like you could before. <laughs> so these things take more time and, and you're calling it careless, which is exactly what it is after a course of time, right? Because you're, you're taking too long to look back up. It, it is. And, and the data shows that typically anybody that changes the radio or um, takes their eyes off the road for, uh, for a moment it lasts anywhere from one to two seconds. And again, think about that in a driving situation where somebody's driving 70 miles per hour, they're driving 100 feet per second, they just went 200 feet and they had no idea what was going on right in front of them. Can I assume, Tim, that you are then a uh, in favor of the cell phone laws that we have uh, recently seen enacted across the nation? Absolutely. And, and uh you know, continually violated, but I am definitely in favor of it. <laughs> we all need to be careful. And there's that law is there for a reason. They have seen way too many accidents on the road since these darn cell phones have been around. Exactly. And and I have had numerous experiences in the last in the last six months, I'm well since that law has been enacted, where I'm driving behind somebody and their driving behavior tells me that, um, that they're obviously not paying attention to the road in front of them, and I'll go up alongside them and look, and sure enough, they're on their, on their oh. texting or trying to dial somebody. Um, again, take their eyes off the road for two or three seconds at 70 miles per hour. They just drove the length of a football field and had no idea what was in front of them. That's so, so what are your thoughts on all of these crash crash protection? Like the cars now, they got the blinking and the in the in the flashing if someone's next to you. I mean, is that helping the situation or is that harming? Because I'll, I'll be honest, the younger generation, and I'm going all the way down to the people who are just learning how to drive, they're not even turning around and looking anymore to see if there's a car. They're just looking at their mirror to see if it's blinking. Does that make sense? It does, and I do think that there's a uh, there's a benefit to them. If they're being used properly, they're called collision avoidance systems. Uh, they're advanced uh, safety uh, collision avoidance systems. And what they do is they have what they call an automatic emergency braking. They have a pedestrian recognition feature and some of the safety systems. But if a person doesn't understand the function and how they work and how they're supposed to work, often they're overlooked or ignored. And again, we go back to our, our senior drivers who maybe become victim of that if they're not aware of why it's buzzing in their ear or what the vibration they're feeling in their seat, then the the feature is really useless at that point. Exactly. And, and just a note, because I just talked to a hearing specialist, as we age, we lose the high pitch tones. Anything high pitch, you start losing first. So a horn, for example, right? Like these are the things that you're like, oh, was that a horn? Or your blinker. You don't even know that it's on sometimes because... It's, the, it's that specific sound that they're not able to hear, which is right back to our reasoning. So next question, the, the generation you know, that, that, that I'm in, really, as far as terminology, we use the word accidents a lot. Um, but I realized in literature, there seems to me the word crash used more often. Is there a delineation between the two? Can you just share with our listeners your thoughts on that? A crash is all-encompassing. Uh, if you, uh, heaven forbid, you're out involved in a, in a uh, 
what's referred to often as a MVA or motor vehicle accident. It's a crash. Um, it's two vehicles or a vehicle tree or vehicle whatever is engaging with another. And, uh, you know, the accident has a little bit more of a, um, a subtlety to it, I think. Like nobody's guilty. That's right, exactly. exactly. That's what I think of. Oh, it was an accident. Well, Well, responsible. We we tend to use the word responsible (laughs) with crashes in terms of responsibility when there's no aggravating factors. Exactly. And and this is more so probably in Bill's wheelhouse and mine, but when we talk about a, a crash versus an accident, if we have somebody that's driving out there with an awful BAC or a, uh, a content of alcohol or uh, drugs in their system, um, that's not an accident, right? Somebody did that, and now they get behind the wheel of a car, and they go out, and, and again, heaven forbid, they're involved in a crash that results in a fatality. That's not an accident, okay? That's a crash, and again... Um, I think it's a matter of uh, uh, terminology, um, and again, the accident being a little more subtle, but when we talk about motor vehicles engaging with trees or others, it's a crash. Do, could you explain just a little bit about what it is you do when you arrive at the scene and you see the debris field EMS has left, how you calculate then and determine responsibilities for the crash. We we do we what they call a situational reconstruction. And what I do and, and what I did for many, many years with the state police, uh, we get to a scene, uh, we typically would start from the end of the crash, the end being where the vehicles come to final rest. Um, we back up from there and we determine where they met in the roadway or off the roadway, whatever the uh, case may be. Um, and one of the things that most often is overlooked in reconstruction in our scene interrogation is what happened several hundred feet prior to that. Again, let's go back to my point about speed. If we're traveling 70 miles per hour, we're traveling 100 feet per second. Well, if we're going to limit our area of interrogation and inspection to an, you know that 10 or 15 foot radius, what's to say something didn't happen 150, 250, 350 feet up the right. road? Right. Which mm-hmm. is very common. Um, and, and then we go from there. We, we, we collect our data. Uh, We later do our vehicle examinations and inspections. Uh, We look at the environmental factors. What were the weather conditions? And and then once we get back to the office, so to speak, we then work to determine causation. What was the contributing, what was a major contributing factor to this crash event? Is that the subjective part of the analysis that you do then? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the most important part of a lot of what you do comes from the information in the car's computers. Now, we hear a lot about Tesla and a lot about the electric vehicles and the information that they store, but in fact, I don't think people realize just how much information electronically is stored in the computer as the car is traveling that you use when you're doing your crash reconstruction analysis. You're absolutely right, Bill. Um, Interesting enough is I I actually teach it for a teaching institute at the University of of North Florida, and what we... Uh, teach is the use of data from the airbag control module. Okay, any vehicle, which is every vehicle based on NHTSA standards, um, effective back in what 19 and late 70s, early 80s, um, has an airbag system in it, a safety uh, system in it. Uh, if in fact it has an airbag, it also has to have what we call an accelerometer or an airbag control module, which then determines the force associated with a crash event and then makes the decision whether to fire an airbag or not. Well, while it's doing all this, it's recording a considerable amount of information and data that we can later extract from the airbag control module. We take that data, we apply it to what our scene evidence is suggesting, and we can then 
do a complete um, reconstruction based on different scientific methodologies as well as our, our 21st century technology. Let me ask you this. How important is an eyewitness in a crash situation? In my opinion, an eyewitness uh, with no ill intent uh, believes this is what they saw. Um, Bill and I have talked about this many times over the years. Uh, the crash, the average crash pulse lasts about 100 to 150 milliseconds. It's been said that it takes us about 300 to 350 milliseconds to blink and refocus. Oh, goodness. So okay. I've asked many times, uh, what is that eyewitness really think they saw? And I've been in many situations where we've had, we've had to argue it. And typically where a juror wants to say, well, if this is what the eyewitness saw. This must be what happened. And I have to try to paint that picture for them in the sense that it happens very, very fast. And the eyewitness really doesn't know what they saw with no ill intentions whatsoever. Also, in the way in which law enforcement works, the way in which we look at cases. We get, we're going to continue this in the next segment because you all have something so critical to say. We'll be back in just a moment. Listening to Next Steps for Seniors Conversations on Aging, our topic today, impact of aging on driving. Stay tuned because in our last segment, we are really going to be discussing how the police and the state can assist in removing a driver's license, and that is a very important thing. But first, we want to hear from Bill. Wendy, and going back to the issue of, of eyewitness identifications, I can tell you, having been a trial lawyer for probably 30 years and probably tried between 60 and 70 homicide cases directly. I'll tell you that eyewitness testimony is the least uh, stable witness. I mean, it's just not what you want because when, when Tim's talking about the inability of an eyewitness to be accurate, studies will show they are the least accurate of all of the well relevant evidence that can be brought forward in a trial. And it comes not from anybody's intention to lie. It comes from what we call confirmation bias or the way in which we do the investigations. Once somebody sees something, then we start putting facts into their heads. We sit down with law enforcement and they get interviewed and then the interview itself begins to say, did you see this? There was this element. Did you see the other cars? What you're actually doing is putting information into their brain that they may not in those milliseconds have been able to identify or rationalize and they adopt that information. So all of a sudden what they saw becomes confirmed from what they learn afterwards. And therefore, they could pass a polygraph test because they truly they really believe, believe it. it. But it's not necessarily what they saw. And that's the issue because people want to believe eyewitnesses more than they want to become involved in understanding the math that Tim is providing in the, math, in the, in the crash reconstruction. And that becomes the problem. So we try not to use eyewitnesses other than maybe as a setup to what happened. We can't ignore them. But Tim's information is the most important. And Wendy, you know, the irony to that is, is what we have found over the years and what I have found numerous times is that an eyewitness, um, though they have no ill intent, um, they become more adamant and yet less accurate with their recollection 
as time goes on. In other words, as it's understood, and, and Bill is well aware of this, is that a, an eyewitness or a witness's recollection of an event will be most accurate as soon after the event as possible. Okay, again, we're talking about an event that lasts 100 to 150 milliseconds. Um, we now understand that, that probably they're not really seeing the event, they're hearing the after effects. But what happens over time, because of their ill intent, all they want to do is help the police, is they become less accurate but more adamant because they, what they do is they want to fill in the blanks. They want to tell the police everything they can possibly because they saw it all. And at the end of the day, um, I've been involved in a case where we've had to tell the family of a, of a deceased person that, I'm sorry, it didn't happen the way the eyewitness said it did. It's very unfortunate. It's very sad. But it's a fact that we cannot ignore doing our reconstruction and our analysis of the case. And they become more defensive about it as you move forward in the case because they believe that that's what they saw and they don't want anybody to question it, as well as the fact that when they leave the police department, when they're no longer involved in the investigation, they're talking constantly to their friends and their relatives as to what they saw, and others are then providing instances, well, what about this, what about this, and they, as Tim said, fill in the gaps with information that they could not possibly have recognized in those milliseconds when they were there. Because as people, we want to be able to rationalize everything that we say and do, and therefore you have to have more context and content. And as a result, that's where the issues come in. So I've got a story to share. So I have a client who wasn't sure if her mom should be driving or not, but her mom drove to her house every day at the same time. Now, right there, anyone who's thinking, just even for a second, I wonder if my parents are safe driving right now. If you're even thinking it, guess what? They're probably not, because this is what happened. This woman, who I don't even remember how old she was, and it doesn't matter, right? Age is, is, is insignificant in this story, but her, she had dementia, and she started driving to her daughter's house that she did every day. But guess what she did? She went the wrong way on a four-lane road. Somebody, thank goodness, went up behind her, got and started, you know, waving her over. She moved over, and the 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 person took out her cell phone and called the last dialed number, which was also very smart to do, and found out that it was her daughter. And she said, "Hey." I'm sitting on the side of the road with your mom. She was going the wrong way on this four-lane road. Now, of course, the daughter was like, oh, shoot, you know what? I was wondering if my mom should drive or not. Well, hello, if you think that for a second, driving, like Bill said in the beginning, is a privilege. It is a privilege. We do not have the right to drive, especially when we're not in a situation that's safe. Tim, in... in Looking then at how you do the crash reconstruction and looking at the physical objective factors that you talked about, Wendy was just talking about subjective factors. How do those play into and do you include those in your analysis? Oh, sure. Um, we, we take all the facts. We take our environmental conditions. We take uh, any number of things. We actually look at, uh, as Bill and I have, have discussed over the years, that there's there's three things we look at that are contributing to a crash. It's, it's the element of human factors, uh, it's the element of environmental factors, and of course, mechanical failure. Um, by and large, the most common cause of car crashes is human factors. 
Okay, so what we have to do is we have to narrow it down and say we can rule out environmental, the, the weather conditions weren't contributing, we can rule out there was no evidence of a mechanical failure. So now what we have to do is we have to determine, okay, what are the human factors? In the absence of drugs and or alcohol, okay, then we get into the area of inattentiveness, okay? And what defines inattentiveness? We talked earlier, texting, um, you know, carrying on a conversation that distracts your attention from the road ahead of you, um, People, people say to them, oh, I don't even know how I just got here. I've been on this phone the whole time talking to a client. Well, hello, if you don't know how you just got to somewhere. Exactly, exactly. And that is a problem. I mean, anybody that says, gosh, I'm not sure I missed my turn. Well, what were you doing that caused you to miss your turn? Simply thinking about something else. Fatigue, um, you know, lack of sleep, uh, the aging process. It's a contributing factor that we cannot ignore is a causal factor. When you talk about seniors, do you see very often the inability to react fast enough has decreased over time, and that contributes especially to the accidents that I wrote warrants on a lot of them in intersections. That seems to be where I see the most. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, one second, Bill. So, so what's so interesting about what you're saying right now, you're asking Tim if he's seen it, and I already know you're going to say yes. The problem is the senior doesn't see it. This is the problem. So let me tell you, this is another story. My, my mother-in-law's in the car with her friend. They're driving. They physically have a stop sign. Guess what the woman did? Slowed down. She slowed down. She did not, under any circumstances, stop that car. And she kept going. Now, the passenger was like, okay, you didn't stop at that stop sign. She says, yes, I did. She didn't stop, but she thought she did. This is the problem. Her foot did not push that brake hard enough to stop that car, and she seriously thought she did. And this is the problem I have with seniors and people not paying attention because if a little two-year-old kid was running out in front of her, she would have hit him. Absolutely, absolutely. And I see that. I still see that today where people will insist, I stopped. With 21st century technologies, we just talked about the airbag control modules and the data we get, we get five seconds of pre-crash, what they were doing five seconds before. Five seconds in a crash event is a lot of time. And when you look at the speed, the, the, the speed element that's associated with that pre-crash, and you see that that number never got to zero, and they're insisting they stopped, guess what? You know. Your car is telling you otherwise. And especially in many of the urban areas, especially in the areas that we live Almost every intersection has cameras now, and I don't think people fully understand when you're doing your crash reconstruction and I'm reviewing your report, one of the first things you've done is you've gone to the bank, you've gone to the gas station, you've gone to the county. You have secured absolutely every possible ring video and security video that shows that intersection. So even though the drivers are saying A, B, and C, we physically have a visual now, which wasn't really prevalent 15, 20 years ago. But in the, in the last five years, every intersection is covered. Every neighborhood is covered. Even the Teslas and the other vehicles have cameras on the vehicle. We also have the GoPros now. We have uh, dashboard cameras. We have a tremendous number of visuals we didn't have before, all of which belie then what the individual is saying that they recall right prior to the accident. So here's a question for you. Is there any state in the United States, and if we don't know this, somebody will, <laughs> that has an age limit on driving? And, and here's why I asked that question while you're thinking about it. 
I had a friend who's 78 renting a car in Europe. And do you know they would not rent a car to him if he was over the age of 75? I'm not aware of anything in the in the U.S. I'm, I'm not saying there's not. I'm just not aware of any laws in particular. Maybe but I would say the 75-year is an issue of insurance it is. and business as Because you're not driving to, your own car, correct. too. And in Michigan, as well as the surrounding Midwestern states, the licenses last for a period of time, four to six years, and you go in to be retested. But there is no age limit like being a judge. In Michigan, you're removed at 70. A federal judge, you're placed on emeritus status at 70. There isn't anything concerning the privilege of driving. That's why the state is involved and has mechanisms for the removal of a driver's license. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Next Steps for Seniors, Conversations on Aging. Welcome back to Next Steps for Seniors, Conversations on Aging. We have had just a fantastic three segments going into our last segment, which I promised you we would have the conversation about now how to solve these problems and what to do about them. Because the impact of aging on driving is a real thing. It's a struggle, and the struggle is real. And guess what? We all get older. We all age. It happens to everyone, and we want to continue driving because we want our independence, but there are times that we're going to talk about today that you should not be driving. So technically, we're having the conversation on how to have the conversation. There we go. <laughs> but my first question for Tim is, what is Driver's License Appeal Division, D-L-A-D? Wendy, it's the administrative section uh, division of the Secretary of State that makes a decision when to restrict somebody's driving privileges, revoke them, suspend them, uh, simply you know remove that person from the road at some point. Um, it's a last step for law enforcement. I think we're going to talk about that here shortly. But um, again, it's the administrative section of the Secretary of State that makes the decision whether a person can and will drive or not. Okay, and that is the last-ditch effort. Before we get there, we're going to talk right now about how to have this conversation. It is so important that we have the conversation. Please do not avoid it. It could be life and death. Do not avoid the conversation. So I'm going to start with number one, be respectful. You, your parent has cared for you, loved on you. And I'm, I'm just going to use parent as an example. It could be anyone in your life that can't be driving, but be empathetic be compassionate. Don't talk down to them and establish an environment of neutrality, right? If you're at a restaurant, I say, go to a restaurant, have lunch together, and then say, you know what, mom, I've been wanting to talk to you about something that I'm a little concerned about. How do you feel? How do you feel about driving? Not to be accusatory. Yes. The Use the word, I have seen this. I have experienced this. Others have noticed as opposed to you don't drive very well anymore. Exactly. And, and I think as we have the conversation and we're talking right now to the uh, kids who have to address their parents, it's also important to send a message to those that are listening who are that adult that when you are approached by your children to be kind 
during the conversation and not to be defensive because in all honesty, maybe they see something that you don't. And Wendy, keep in mind that uh, for, for the listener, be cognizant and understand that your initial response from your loved one is going to be with resistance. All right, you're talking about stripping of their independence. And I think we have to be very, very mindful of that, that initially it's not going to be well-received. And we're, so we're going to have to continue that soft approach uh, until we get to the point where they recognize simply by certain behavior traits that they're just not capable of driving any longer. And therefore, we've got to come up with our alternatives. But again, initially, you're going to get some resistance from that loved one. I do feel like... Th- a lot of people recognize when they're starting to decline a little. They're not quite as sharp as they used to be. So my, I guess my big thing is let's, uh, let's ask them how they're feeling about it. Because honestly, if they really think about it, and maybe, maybe, let me just say this, maybe we just start limiting time, right? Because we all know it's easier to drive during the day than it is at night guess what, mom, I'm going to have my son pick you up to come to the party at night because I know it's harder to drive at night. But you know what? He wants to spend time with you. It's not about anything else. So maybe we just focus on let's just drive short distances and let's just drive during the day. It's also, I think, very important to have the right person have the conversation. So in our family, there were my three brothers and a sister. I'm the golden child at some level as we've gotten older. My older brother was the golden child. Why doesn't that surprise me? (laughs) But then I've become, they've moved away. I still live close by. I'm more or less the caregiver or was during the time that they were alive. So I think the studies have shown and the information we get from the National Highway Safety Transportation Agency is pick the right person, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's the, the, the child closest, maybe it's a brother or a sister, an aunt or an uncle. But I think if it's a person that the driver has the most respect for, then maybe they're not as defensive when the information that's difficult to accept is delivered. I think it's a process, too. I, I just want to say, let's trust the process. We can't start with, okay, you can't drive anymore. It's got to be a process. And the first time you mention it is not when they're going to stop driving or even change their habits. It's probably the second or third conversation that you have, or maybe even the fourth. So let's not delay starting the conversation. And I love that you said that, Bill. The right person is critical in delivering the information. But also, as you indicated before, can you provide them with alternatives? So in my situation, my sister happened to have just gotten divorced, moved in with my mother who was in her late 80s at that point. Mom was real happy then to give her car to my sister who didn't have a car at the time and let my sister drive her around. So for us, that was easy. So you need to come up, if, if like all the kids are living in the same neighborhood or at least in the same city, provide alternatives so that they believe that their independence and the activities and their to-do list can be completed still by alternative means other than them having to drive from point A to point B. We are blessed today because we have Uber and we have Lyft. Now, here's the problem. Some seniors don't know how to use that online with their cell phone. So I'm just going to challenge all the listeners right now. If you have a loved one in your life, why don't you order the transportation for them? Why don't you give them the 800 number? Yes, there is an 800 number. You don't always have to do it through your app on your phone. I know that sounds shocking, but there are other ways to order an Uber and a Lyft. And let's take advantage of that.
And it's not a one-time conversation. This is a conversation had during holidays, uh, during your weekly visits, because I think it's a slow process for mm -hmm. them to give up their license and decide that you are correct. They're not going to just simply jump in like my mom said, you're right, I'm going to stop. It, it doesn't work that way with most families. So remember, it's a process. And, it, it, and, and even having an intervention, that's why I think holidays are good, even though it may uh, put a little bit of a cloud over the celebration. But if everybody is there and on the same page, then I think the conversation becomes more respectful and less defensive. So let's talk about some questions that they should be thinking about. Number one, are, is your loved one getting lost on routes that they should be familiar with? Okay. Sure. And, you know, Wendy, and I would hope that uh, your listeners today, some of the things that we've talked about in particular is not only uh, are they getting lost in the routes, just their general behavior around the house or, or running to and from the store, their uh, recollection of time. Um, the other thing that we have discussed in, in, in quite length, I think, in the small time we've had is that for the listener to be thinking about the fact if they're driving 70 miles an hour down the freeway, they and they take their eyes off the road for three seconds, they drove a football field without seeing what was in front of them. Okay, think about the fact that these crashes happen in 100 to 150 milliseconds and our eyewitnesses at their best don't know what happened. Put that all together and think about your parent and, and the potential for, for a, an event, uh, the, the potential, the risk that they're at, they put themselves at and anybody else in motoring public when making that decision to confront them. Is there a way, Tim, for the state to become involved if, in fact, all of these wonderful tips that Wendy's giving and and families have and the relationships but all of a sudden they have somebody who's resistant who isn't going to give up their license can the state get involved to help a family in that situation sure uh, law enforcement has that option uh, depending on the circumstances but they can file a form and i can't tell you the name of it i don't recall uh, what the number every was. secretary of state in every state has a driver's division that will have a form that can be filled out that's correct and again it, it's back to the driver's license appeal division uh they will then review they'll they'll interview the person they'll put them through certain cognitive steps and does the person show evidence of being lack of attentiveness and inability to drive, and at what point then the, the state can take the action and restrict them or revoke their driving privileges. Can it be done anonymously? I don't know that it that would, could be done anonymously or if it would have to be triggered by some sort of event, heaven forbid. Um, but again, the, the law enforcement does have that, or they at least they did back in my day, had that option uh, available to them if, in fact, they saw you know certain uh, factors as a result of their... And one final tip also, Wendy, would be contact their doctors. If, in fact, their doctors have seen the same issues that you're seeing, the doctors can become your ally in either assisting to convince them or to provide documentation when the driver's license appeal division gets involved so that you have objective facts that you can bring in. Actually, and that's a very good point. A doctor has as much influence as anybody does. If you think about somebody that's had experience any sort of seizure disorders, uh, once the doctor notifies Secretary of State that they've been treating this person for seizure disorders, it's an immediate uh, request for what we call re-exam. So that's another great point. And what we really want is the senior to make the decision on their own. We need to be 
We need to be strong. We need to be loving. We need to be respectful. But we really want to encourage it by example. Look at the dents on your car, mom. Look at the, let me show you. Here's some examples. They they know. They know. They just don't want to lose their independence. So let's wrap our arms around them. Let's show them that we're in this together. Let's give them some alternatives. Let's set up drivers for them. This is what we do for the ones we love. And protect public safety. You're listening to Next Steps for Seniors, Conversations on Aging. You can reach us at 248-651-5010. You've been listening to this week's edition of Next Steps for Seniors with your host, Wendy Jones. You can reach Wendy with any questions you have at area 248-651-5010. That's 248-651-5010. Join us again next week as Wendy provides more information and resources for those important next steps for your elderly parent or loved one. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.